for the anthem of the sin. And uh, I had every intention of getting a song this week, but just never, uh, you get it? And it didn't make it as long. No, that's, that's a joke. We do have a song, but we'll get to it in just a second. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Joshua. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 14 and look at the case of Caleb. So Caleb is going to be our case study as someone who conquers and is victorious over sloth. But we'll, let me set up the song. So uh, this comes from the unofficial history of grunge. If you want to add a book to your reading list, grunge music. Uh, Kurt uh, and... Kurt and Kathleen were holed up in the woods of Olympia, Washington. Uh, Kathleen, Kathleen was a singer-songwriter of the influential, quote, influential feminist riot girl punk band named Bikini Kill. And they were sharing a bottle of Canadian Club whiskey with the goal on this fateful October night in 1990. Uh, their goal was to deface a new teen pregnancy center which Hannah described as, quote, a right-wing con where they get teenage girls to go in there and then they told them that they're going to go to hell if they have abortions. And uh, after doing some recon, her and Kurt, uh, Kurt was on the lookout, so Hannah ran up in the middle of the night and uh, took spray paint and graffitied fake abortion clinic, everyone, and then ran back. Then it was Kurt's turn, and then he ran up, and in giant six-foot letters spray painted, God is gay, on the front door. Then the two spent the rest of their evening celebrating their victory of social protest. And they ended up at Kirk's house where Hannah went around and in joyful triumph smashed things all throughout the house. I'm sure his mother loved that. And then she took out a Sharpie and wrote in giant letters on his bedroom wall, Kurt smells like teen spirit. And then they both passed out. Then he woke up in the morning and it was like an epiphany from the Lord. The line, Kurt, smells like teen spirit. And that was the in inspiration for this song. So hit it, Eli. in the early 90s were instantly taken back. And that song, it's interesting, from Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit, has actually called by one British research group uh, the most iconic song of all time. That, that it embodies the mood of an entire generation better than any song ever written, which is a pretty staggering, bold claim. But do you think about it? That anthem is the anthem of a generation. It's the anthem of those who are cosmically bored. You hear, when the light's out, 
It's less dangerous. Here we are now. Entertain us. Come on, what are you going to do? Here we are. Entertain me. I feel stupid. I feel contagious. But here we are. Entertain us. And I forget, and I forget just why I taste. Oh, yeah, I guess it makes me smile. See, there's things that are supposed to, I taste, and they're supposed to be good. People tell me these things are good. But I'm so numb, I don't even taste them. I find it hard. It's hard to find. Oh, well, whatever. Never mind. Hello, 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 hello. And this whole anthem of a generation is, here I am now, entertain me, feed me, I'm bored, whatever. And what's interesting is that was the, those were the grunge kids. So this, this, that was the anthem when I was in high school. So that instantly takes me back to ninth grade. And, you know, you had the grunge kids over here who were, you know, uh, singing that song. And then you had like the preppy, uh, legally blonde cheerleaders over here. And this was, do you remember? I don't even remember when the girls would go like, whatever. <laughs> and they do that. That's, that was cool at the same time. What's, what's interesting is they're actually suffering from the same disease, even though they're not hanging out at all in the lunchroom. And they're pointing fingers at one another. That actually articulates, almost better than any song I know, the anthem of sloth what sloth really is. Now, this week has been fascinating kind of studying for sloth because I originally set this series up thinking, all right, we get to the seven, you know, the seven deadly sins. All right, sloth, that's laziness. We're not really in an area where people are really going to struggle with that, so we can kind of move on. I thought, well, of course, our case study will be the sluggard in Proverbs because there's a character in Proverbs who's the sluggard, and he just needs some motivation. He's, he's kind of a tragic comic figure who just needs some kind of oomph to his life. And then the more this week I started wrestling and studying, and I said, that's not it at all. It's actually much worse than we can imagine. It's a lot more pervasive than I'd ever thought. And the Desert Fathers, who were some of the wisest pastoral counselors who would help people wrestle and fight their own sin, they would clump sloth, lust, and gluttony all together. And they would say that lust and gluttony are sins of the flesh. They're easy to destroy, but sloth can slowly seep into your soul and infect it. So we need to first think, all right, sloth, let's get our mind around it. What it is not, it's not just laziness. It is not laziness. Uh, there's this this little delightful little series on the seven deadly sins that Oxford University Press put out, uh, little bitty books. And uh, so to help me, I've been reading each one. And the one for this week is on sloth. Uh, Wendy Wasserstein wrote it. And it's interesting because one thing she writes in this book is uh, it's actually a, a parody self-help manual on how you can get more sloth into your life. Because she says, far from being a deadly sin, it is one of the world's most amiable weaknesses. Most of the world's problems come from people who are too busy. We actually need more sloth in our life. So most people look at that sloth and say, well, it's just nice. So maybe you're not very motivated and just binge watch Netflix. What's the big deal? And actually, when you start looking at what it is, what it causes, how deep it is, you see it actually is worse. Another book that's a little more helpful is uh, from R.J. Snell, who's a philosophy professor and at uh, Eastern University, wrote a book called Acedia and its Discontents. So the original Greek word for sloth is acedia, a, not, cedia, care. It's someone who does not care. And here, this is kind of long, but hang on, it's worth it. He says, sloth is not laziness, although the term in time does come to mean inactivity. 
Rather, it reveals a frustration, a hate, a disgust at place and life itself. See, in Asidia, he's talking about the monks who first really wrestled with understanding these things. The monk abhors what God has given, namely the reality and the limits of his life, especially the limits on one's own selfhood. See, Asidia is a profound withdrawal into self, where action for others is no longer perceived as a gift of oneself, as the response to a prior loving act that love calls forth. It's seen instead as an uninhibited seeking of personal satisfaction in the fear of losing something. The desire to save one's freedom at any price in reality is a deeper enslavement to self. So sloth is the desire that I'm going to maintain my freedom at all cost. So there's no longer any room for the abandonment of self to the other, for the joy of the gift. And what remains in the soul is sadness and bitterness. Because one has distanced himself from the community who being separated from others finds themselves also separated from God. It's a mistake to think that sloth is laziness. The slothful might very well be very busy doing things. It's a frenzy of pointless action. Now this, now that, and they're disgust at the actual work God has put before them. Much more than indolence, sloth rejects the burden of order, choosing instead the breezy lightness of freedom, loving self more than others, autonomy more than good. In sloth, one rejects the weight of living in loving relationships. So all these symptoms, you know, one of the things, all of the sins, what God tells Cain in Genesis chapter 4 is that sin is lurking outside your door, waiting. And sloth is one of the things that is looming. It's lurking. It's waiting. So how do you know? So to kind of keep the 90s theme uh, in, in honor of the 90s, uh, we'll do another kind of riff. Uh, there was a famous Southern comedian in the 90s who had a famous little line called, you might be a redneck if... So Jeff Foxworthy, you know, you might be a redneck if somebody asks to see your ID and you show them your belt buckle. You might be a redneck if somebody comes to your house uh, mistakenly thinking you're having a yard sale. Um, so let's say you, you might be slothful if. So if you struggle and you know it with the fear of missing out, with FOMO, you might be a sloth. If your energy and joy for your spouse is less today than it was when you married, you might be a sloth. If your life, when somebody asks you how you're doing and your response is, I'm so busy, life is so busy, you might be a sloth. If you struggle on Monday afternoon at 2 o'clock sitting in your office and you start to daydream about anywhere but here, I would rather be anywhere but right here, you might be a sloth. Struggle with apathy, struggle with motivation, struggle with procrastination, you might be a sloth. What Stephen Pressfield calls for people in creative field, he calls the war of art, where you have to sit down and you have to do your work and you start feeling that resistance. And so you'll do anything except what you're supposed to do in the moment. You'll rearrange your closet, you'll shine your shoes, you'll wash your car, anything. But what you're supposed to be doing in the moment, you might be a sloth. So if you're easily distracted and easily discouraged... You could struggle with sloth. If you're constantly checking your phone or checking out, you might struggle with sloth. What Pressfield, he gives an image from a, 
kind of unknown, never, I'd never heard of it before, uh, novel from a writer that came out of the Czech Republic in 1984. And he says there's two characters in this book that perfectly embody sloth effect on us. One, and it's, uh, the name of the book is The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And there's two characters. One is Thomas and one is Sabina. And so Thomas is kind of your... You know, your type A go-getter who loves work and he's a womanizer and has all these conquests. And uh, he, he has this uh, conquest of one woman one night who's this kind of country bumpkin who doesn't really know the ways of the world. And so after their escapade, she doesn't know she's supposed to leave. And she stays. She like tries to hold his hand and kind of lay on his shoulder. And then he starts to have a panic attack because he can't handle it's the unbearable weight that the responsibility is now coming on him and he panics. He can't take it. There's something that's now being asked of him and required. And then this is a sentence where he comes up Sabina's life, which is so haunting. So listen, the heavier the burden, the closer our lives come to the earth, the more real and truthful they become. But conversely, the absence, the absolute absence of burdens can cause man to be lighter than air, to soar into the heights, to take leave of the earth and his earthly being and become, but you become only half real. Your movements are free, but they're totally insignificant. What then shall we choose? Shall we choose weight or lightness? When we want to give expression to some dramatic situation in our lives, we tend to use metaphors of heaviness. We say that something has become a great burden to us. We either bear the burden or fail and go down with it, but we struggle, win or lose. He said, and Sabina, what had come of her? Nothing. She had left a man because she felt like leaving him. Had he persecuted her? Had he tried to take revenge on her? No. Her drama was a drama not of heaviness, but of lightness. What fell to her lot was not the burden, but the unbearable lightness of being. And so in the novel for both of them, they relentlessly pursue their own freedom to the extent that in the end they are utterly rootless. And they're aimless, and they're pointless, and they die loveless because they refuse to allow the weight of responsibility to be placed on them. So teen, the Smells Like Teen Spirit, it's an anthem of, of an entire age because it articulates that refusal to bear the burdens of loving relationships. Uh, two things we can think, all right, how does sloth manifest itself? It can manifest itself in just in apathy of the heart. So you have a despairing resignation. So you've checked out, you've given up. There's a sense that, just like in the song, all my sense of taste is gone. I can't taste, I can't uh, smell, I'm just stuck. I'm not alive. I'm a drone. I'm a zombie. And what it'll cause is some, it's one of the reasons like teenage girls will cut themselves because they want to know at least for 30 seconds while I'm bleeding, I'm alive. And that's sloth eating away at somebody's soul. Another way it can affect you is from not apathy but avoidance where you just desperately pursue one escape after another. And you avoid. And your mantra is, all right, here we are. Entertain us. Divert us. Distract us. Always clicking. Always checking. Never at rest. Never silent. Never at peace. 
That's sloth. And one of the reasons why it's so bad, the second point, is what they would say is the where sloth is going to attack you, it's going to attack you at the very core of who you are. It'll attack you because it's trying to slowly seep the life out of your closest relationships and your actually call your calling, your vocation, the reason why you're you're alive. So what uh, sloth is is refusing the daily drudgery and discipline that love requires and seeking, seeking escapes. And so it can be fueled by fear. So fear of missing out, fear of being tied down, fear of doing the wrong thing in the wrong way, or it can be fueled by neglect. But either way, it slowly tries to steal the things most precious to us. So I, th that's what it is. So when you see that, you think, well, sloth is not just a, a kind of funny, bumbling thing. This is actually deathly serious because it's what wants to slowly drain my life of life. So where do you go to find help? We wanted to look in this whole series, do case studies of people who either fell to the sin or overcame it. And actually, this week I had somewhat of a, my, well, I was about to say a crisis, not a crisis. I didn't know where to go because I initially thought, all right, we're going to do the character in Proverbs, a sluggard, but this is not it. This doesn't really get at what sloth really is. And so even at the men's Bible study on Thursday, I was like, I don't know where to go. And what was so fascinating, it was actually in the midst of struggling with sloth that I saw a ray of light to help us how we can get out of it. And I was having my own Bible reading and in my own Bible reading, I was in Joshua, in the section from Joshua 13 all the way to the end in 21. And you kind of get to this section in Joshua, and kind of the energy and the action starts to lag a little bit. So the first part of the book is pretty energetic. You have the, one of the key words is passing over. So they are coming out of the wilderness, and they're crossing over into the promised land, and they're going to go. And then the second major uh, section is the battles. They're coming in, and they're going to take it. That's the key, one of the key lines is they take. And so you have the battle of Jericho, then AI, the fall, and then they rise and they take it and they start moving. And uh, then you, you hit kind of this, this lull in chapter 13 all the way to 20, where it's just kind of one almost endless cycle of place names. Here's so-and-so, the lot fell to them. They went here. Here's the boundary. Here's these half a dozen towns that you've never heard of. And so it can be pretty uh, monoton monotonous. This relentless names and places, you know, it can be a cure for insomnia. And as I was sitting there Thursday, just kind of reading and dozing off and not really paying attention, all of a sudden it was like the Spirit of the Lord said, wake up. You're actually failing in the very thing you're thinking about how to fight. And look, look, open up your eyes. Where are you? And actually in this section from 13 to 19, we have a tremendous demonstration of what it means to be faithful to fight all the way to the end and to battle sloth. And you have a, an illustration of what it means to fall to it, the slow, steady draining. So let's kind of set up the section. In verse chapter 13, you can look back and here's, or actually chapter 12, you can see the whole litany of all of Joshua's great accomplishments. They defeated this king and this king and this king. So they've come in and they've taken the land. So the great victory has been won. Now they have the hard work of settling in and possessing it. So it's kind of like the idea of, you know, when you've moved, you know, you move to a new home and the first four days were this explosion of activity and you move 90% of your things in those four days. Then how much time does it take to finish the final 10%? 
eight years. Seven years later, you still have boxes that you don't even notice are there until company comes over. And you're like, oh, yeah, we actually haven't hung that fan. And why does it take so long to actually finish? Because we're all slothful. And this is the story in macro of in Joshua. They've come into the land. They've taken it. Now they have to finish uh, the job. And it sets them in chapter 13. It says, now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you're old and advanced in years, but there remains yet much land to possess. You're not done. You made a good start, but you're not finished. And then let's look, because what we have this kind of this case study of comparing Caleb and the seven tribes to the north. And so the seven tribes of the north, uh, they get to their land, and then chapter 17, they're, they complain about the allotment. They said, look, we're Joseph. It was probably Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. We're Joseph. We're the most numerous tribe. You're giving us this? And we want the hill country. We want the forest, too. And Joseph said, fine, go cut it down. You have to do the work. This is the gift. Now you actually have to do the work of settling. They feel entitled. They're complaining. And they have no energy. It says they were slack in obeying the Lord's commands. And one of the things you see is actually uh, incomplete obedience is disobedience. So they're not finishing. But then here Caleb is a case study in finishing. So let's follow along. And there's a couple things I think we can learn about how we can be faithful in every age and every stage of life. So let's pick up in verse chapter 14, starting in verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal and Caleb. Now I tried all morning to pronounce his, his name and out of respect of the family to not butcher it, we'll just, so you see his family's name there. You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh to spy out the land and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of this people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since that time the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And, be, and behold, now I am this day 85 years old, and I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. When that day was 45 years ago. Give it to me. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there and with great fortified cities. And it may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. And then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb. And therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb. And to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. And then it says, now this was Kirith Arabah. And Arabah was the greatest man among the Anakim. But he was driven out, and the land was at rest from war. So here in Caleb, you see this remarkable demonstration of what it means to be faithful all the way to the end, to fight the good fight, to finish the race. So a couple things I want you to see is one, that faithfulness to the end can be, it will be lonely and it can seem crazy. And that faithfulness to the end is fueled by promises and energized by the present. So let's think about those two things. First, it can be lonely and will seem crazy. I love what he says, look at verse 8. 
But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. The only two people in the entire company, probably two million, that wanted to go forward were Joshua and Caleb. Now, interesting enough, they're the only two people of the entire nation that get to choose their inheritance, choose where they're going to settle. They're the only two people. To be faithful at times can be very lonely. In fact, often the battle of faithfulness will be, will you be faithful even when you're lonely? Will you be faithful when nobody's watching? Will you be faithful in the mundane? So we call spiritual integrity. Much of the spiritual life happens when you're alone. What do you do when nobody's watching? One of the things Jesus repeats over and over, don't practice your righteousness to be seen by others. Don't just give to the poor to be seen by them. Don't just pray to be seen by them. Don't fast so people are impressed by your spiritual devotion. You don't do these things for the attention. So just think about your own life. What sloth wants to creep into our hearts to numb us so that we're only actually motivated when eyes are on us. So what things in your life are you most motivated to do because you know people are watching? We need attention, need encouragement. How can you be faithful even when no one's watching? But what's so interesting here is notice Caleb has to suffer. He has to wait 45 years because of the sins of his people. He suffers because of other people's sins. Can you imagine for 40 years he's wandering in the wilderness? How many times do you think he laid in his mat on the ground in his tent at night thinking, I should not be here right now? Why am I here? I should already be in my bed that I've created in the land that the Lord has given us. Why am I here? He had to suffer because of the sins of others. But then faithfulness, it can be lonely. It can cause you to suffer for the sins of others, but then faithfulness can seem crazy. I love the energy of Caleb. Did you notice in verse 12, Caleb and Joshua are the only ones who get to pick the land. Did you notice what land Caleb picks? He picks the fortified cities where the Anakim were. Do you remember the original reason why the Israelites were too scared to go into the land? Because of the fortified cities where the Anakim were. They were scared of them. And so here he is 45 years later. He hasn't gotten any younger. He claims he's still just as strong, maybe. But he is then going to take the actual land that everybody else was afraid of. They probably looked at him and thought, are you crazy? Like, what are you doing? You want to go there? Look, sit down. Let somebody, let some of these young kids go up and, and do the job. And what's so interesting is his vigor and his energy is fueled by the impossibility of what he's going to do. And one of the things really to think about is maybe you struggle with sloth because you're not trying to do anything that requires supernatural help. You know, one of the things is we'll struggle with sloth as long as we just stand in the world and look at it like consumers. Say, here I am. Entertain me. Feed me. Distract me. See, here, Caleb, he's going to try and do something that if God doesn't fight for him, he's going to fail. And it's worth thinking, is there anything in your life that you're trying to do that if God doesn't show up, it's going to fail? And then what dream are you dreaming for yourself, for your kids, like, do you want something for your kids that if God doesn't do it, it's going to fail? Or you just want something that anybody can do, that just be fine, well-behaved, good, productive citizens of the community? Like, what do we actually want for them? He wants something bigger. 
There's a, I, I doubt this is true. This is one of the stories. You know, preacher stories and business stories. They're, they're all, who knows where they come from. This is a business story. And there's a business story about an American shoe manufacturer in the 40s who were sending people, uh, wanted to send uh, reps into China to start their, uh, their, you know, selling shoes to the Chinese. And the story goes that one of their first sales rep went in and he cabled back home, you have to bring me back, no one here wears shoes. And then they sent another person in, and of course he cabled back, we have to build another factory, nobody here wears shoes. I don't know if that's true or not, but you get the point. How he's looking at what's the opportunity before us. Caleb is looking and saying, this opportunity is impossible. Awesome. If God doesn't show up, then we fail. That's what faithfulness, sometimes it can seem crazy. But then faithfulness is fueled by the promises and it's energized by the present. Faithfulness, look, notice how it's fueled by the promises. I love it because five times he has this anthem here, the Lord said the Lord said, you know in verse 6 what the Lord said to Moses. You heard what the Lord said to me. You heard what he said to Moses in verse 10. You heard what the Lord said. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and drive them out just as he said. His faith, it may seem crazy, but it's not. Because faith isn't a leap into the dark, it's a leap into the light. He's leaping into the light of God's word and God's promises. And he says, I know who he is, I know what he's said, and I'm trusting in him to come through. He's believing in the promises. It's acting on his word. And that's what faith does. It takes God's promises, it turns them into prayers, and then it pleads them back to energize our action. And so faith clings to what he says. So maybe one thing you can battle sloth in your own heart is you need to know more of his word. You need to know more of his promises. What has the Lord said? See, the promises of God are to be stimulants for our actions, not sedatives to put us to sleep. They're to stimulate you. This is, this is spiritual coffee to get us up and get us moving. And then the last thing, notice faithfulness is energized by the present. I love this, this presentation, his, uh, his conception of himself. Look at verse 10. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said. This is why I'm alive. If I'm alive, it's because he has something for me to do. And this right now, right here is it. And these 45 years since the time that the Lord said this word to me, while Moses walked in the wilderness, behold, now I'm this day 85 years old. And I'm still as strong today as I was in the day when Moses sent me. My strength, my stamina. You know, I love that energy. He says, look, I spent the last 45 years walking through war and the wilderness. I was made for this. You tell me, step down and let one of these young kids come do it? No, this is why I'm here. This is why I am made. I have the strength and I have the stamina. And he's energized by what's placed before him in that moment. And what's so fascinating is, is Caleb recognized this is my life's work. This is why I'm here. This is why I've been created, to take this for my family. You know, it's fascinating. I mean, maybe, you know, if you never found, you know, what your life's work is, uh, maybe you just hadn't gotten there yet. And Caleb got it when he was 85. Maybe it takes time. It takes progressions. But notice, he had to be faithful. You know, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't still be strong and have the strength and stamina if he spent all 40 years in the wilderness getting drug around on a mat. You know, he had to keep up his stamina. He had to keep up his strength. There was things he did every day so he could say that, and it would be true. So think about your own heart. All right, what's your, maybe what's your life's work? 
Maybe you won't know it yet, but in every location, there's a lesson for you. In every place where you are, there's something that God wants you to learn. There's something he wants you to know. There's a certain way he wants you to grow. And so here with Caleb, you just see this remarkable image and illustration of someone who is faithful all the way till the end. You know, I called my good friend in Claremont, Caleb uh, Brazier. We, you know, we planted together and, that, and uh, said, all right, I'm preaching on your namesake tomorrow. He says, good. He's the most underrated character in the whole Bible. <laughs> Caleb never gets the love he deserves. And said, so don't you want to be like this? Someone who to the end of his days is eager, energetic, faithful, fighting, finishing the race, fighting the good fight. Where do you get the strength to make war on the sloth that will seep into your soul? You know, sloth, if you think about it, is cosmic boredom. It's bored. It's bored with the world. And you think about it, boredom is a judgment. Boredom is an act of judgment. You're sitting on the throne of the cosmos and you're rendering judgment on it that it is not worthy of your energy, of your time, of your attention. When you're bored around people, you're judging them. You're judging them not to be worthy of your attention or not to be worthy of your sacrifice. But you know, salvation is also an act of judgment. The way we get the strength to overcome sloth is we have to look to another, one greater than Caleb. Salvation is also a judgment, but when Jesus came, he delivers the verdict of not cosmic disvalue, you're not worthy, but of cosmic value. You are worthy. You are worthy of my attention. You are worthy of my affection. You are worthy of my ultimate sacrifice. See, when we look to the cross, we look and we see one who had a work to do, and the work was redemption, and he took it all the way to completion, even though it was lonely, even though it was hard, even though he was suffering for the sins of others. He took it, and when he cries out on the cross, it is finished, that is a cosmic declaration that the seas of sloth have been cut, and all of us who suffer with it can find life in him. See, on the cross, sloth is a refusal to bear the weight that love requires, and on the cross, you have the ultimate demonstration of him bearing the weight that redemption required. He endured the crushing burden with joy, because he loved us enough to finish the work the Father gave him. And so we follow in the footsteps of one who is faithful to the very end. So ending here, just a couple practical things. How can you work this into your life? Because it's on the cross that Jesus redeems us, and then it's by the Holy Spirit that he makes us new. So every person in this room who struggles with distraction, who struggles with um, lack of focus. It's the Holy Spirit that can make us new. Because all Christian living, in essence, is, is giving of yourself. It's sacrificial suffering. So anything that matters is just going to take daily toil, daily nurturing, daily effort, and daily practice. One of the troubles, though, is that with sloth, there's no easy remedy. It's not like a, there's not a Mary Poppins fix where she can just clap her hands and wave her wand and look, the whole house is now clean and tidy. It takes work, slow, steady, daily, deliberate work. And one of the things that can help you, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is you need the stability 
of place. See, sloth is refusal to allow the weights of place to put on you. But one of the things you need to see, a couple things, is see the beauty of the boundaries. First, the Lord has laid boundaries for you, and you don't need to see those as restrictions to your freedom, keeping you bound, but you need to see those as gifts. Notice in chapter 15, I won't read them all, but what struck me in chapter 15 in the first 12 verses, 19 times, he says, this is the boundary. This is the boundary of Edom. This is the boundary of the South Sea. This is the boundary on the south. Here's the east boundary. Here's the boundary on the north. Here's the boundary that goes here. Here's the boundary here. Here's the boundary here. 19 times, this is your boundary. And what you begin to see is the beauty of the boundaries, that the Lord has placed you in a certain position around certain people in a certain place because he wants you to grow and thrive there. So you see the beauty. You know, one of the things that makes this boring to us is because there's this relentless role of place names. Because we don't know any of the places. We don't know any of the people. But every single one of those is a declaration that God is faithful to his promises. Because he promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that of your descendants, you're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'm going to give them this land. And every single place name is a place where he's placing his people. He said, I want my people here. I will have people in Kadesh Barnea who will pray to me and praise me. I will have people here. And every single one of those place names with boundaries is, is a place that the Lord wants his people. So how can you develop faithfulness? One question in that I've been thinking over and over is trying to fight sloth in my own life is what does it look like to be faithful in this place with these people? What does faithfulness look right now in this place with these people? God has put you in this place. You know, one of the things we joke, because Cynthia's from Orlando, and she's one of, like, four of you. So, like, in there's room, there's two of you who are actually from here. Everybody else is transient. So thank you for letting us come in. And, uh, you know, we come here on vacation, we like it, and we don't leave. And so you might be thinking, well, I'm transient. This is not my home. I'm, I'm passing through. I'm going from here to the next stop. Right now, the Lord has you placed. Why are you here? Be here. One of the greatest troubles, struggles in our modern age is to be present where we are present. And so the question is, all right, what does the Lord, why am I here? Why does he have me in this house, on this street, going to this office with these neighbors? Why am I here? I think for the life of our church, we'll talk about in a minute when we have a members meeting, one of the most important questions we have is, why are we here? Well, what does the Lord have for us to do in this place? Why are we in this place? I mean, it's worth thinking about. I mean, think about, all right, why am I in my office? Why am I in my job? So some of you, you know, why is it that, you know, right now the, the largest employer in this town is a missions agency, what does the Lord want for a community that's built up where the largest employers are missionaries? Like, what does the Lord want for this town? It might be something extraordinary. Maybe we need the Lord to have, give us a bigger gaze of what he wants us to do here. And then why are you on your street? The Lord has ordained those times and seasons. It's not so you can hide in your home away from people. Why are you here? And then why would these people, you know, the, you heard the old saying, family, everybody's got one. Why, why did the Lord place me in this family? What is it I'm supposed to be a means of, to mediate grace? Why am I here? This family, 
this street, these neighbors, these co-workers, these soccer teammates. See, if smells like teen spirit is an anthem for our age, I think the great song of counterpoint is singing the song where we love, maybe Mr. Rogers' theme song is the great counterpoint, where we're going to love our neighborhood, love the place where we are in the here and now. So let's pray and ask him to help this to be so. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the power of your son on the cross who redeems us. We confess to you the subtle way sin can seep into our hearts and it can infect so many different things. So we ask that you help us. We ask that you help us to truly find freedom, not by sloughing off the weight of responsibility, but by joyfully embracing them in the power of your son and your spirit. So I pray for anyone here who they know they're just distracted in life. They're so divided and so distracted. Give them the strength and the courage to focus on the things that are most important. Lord, we pray for anyone uh, for marriages in this room who they've experienced the slow, steady, seeping away of life and energy and love. We pray, we thank you that in the power of the cross and the gospel, we can stop it and we can reverse the effects of the curse pray for anyone here this morning that are struggling with their, their work and their calling and there's I don't know why I'm here. What does the Lord uh, want from me? Give them a sense of, of why you've placed them here, what you're calling them to do, how they can contribute to your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in the 10,000 small things that you put in our way every single day. And Lord, we pause now and we grieve. We pray for the families in New Zealand who lost loved ones, we grieve for them. We long for the day when Isaiah 2 will be a reality where the nations lay down their swords and we study war no more and there's no more killing, there's no more death, no more disease, no more tears, no more pain. And We pray for those closer to home in Nebraska who are experiencing terrible disaster. We pray for people um, who are in the midst of the darkness. Come to them in this moment. Know this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.